right, yeah, you guys may be seated. Good morning again. Worship music team, thank you so much. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we are concluding our summer series preaching uh, chapter by chapter through the book of 2 Corinthians. And we uh, have seen over the last several weeks uh, that the day and age that we live in now uh, isn't unique. It's not, it's not new. Uh, the church at Corinth 2,000 years ago, uh, along with many churches in today's uh, uh, age believe that they've discovered the secret to church growth, right? And, and we've kind of seen, uh, even naturally, as we've read through uh, this book together, we've seen uh, just uh, the relevancy of this book uh, for us today. But uh, the, the church of Corinth 2,000 years ago, much like churches today, think they found the secret to church growth, dynamic speakers, uh, church services that charge ticket prices. We saw the super apostles doing that. Uh, an emphasis on power and wealth and health. Uh, distaste for humility and weakness and confrontation and truth. A distaste even for the free offer of the gospel. There's people in Corinth and certainly these super apostles have been teaching that if you have to give the gospel out for free, then it must not be worth very much. And we see that some at Corinth have, have bought into this lie and, and this desire for an entertainment, lust-driven ministry. It wasn't, wasn't even unique to Corinth at the time. We see that the Apostle Paul, he warned Timothy and the church of Ephesus about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. The Apostle Paul, he says this. He says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they'll turn away. They'll turn away from listening to the truth and they'll wander off into myths. And much like the first century church, we can be tempted, right? We can be led astray by our own passions. We just finished spending some time singing about that. We're, we're prone to wander. We declare to the Lord that we feel that. We're prone to leave the God we love. And our only hope is that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, seals us until the day that we acquire possession of our inheritance. Amen? And so we can be tempted. We can be led astray by our passions and, and our desire for numerical growth even. We can end up succumbing to the temptation to downplay things that are unpopular like sin. Right? We can succumb to the temptation to, to downplay the message that Jesus is the only way to have peace with God. We can put together a, a well-polished Sunday morning program where the, the kids have fun and, and you leave feeling pretty good about yourselves in the hopes that you'll come back the next week. And, and there's so-called churches that, that emphasize this type of ministry every Sunday. We see churches in the first century that emphasized this type of ministry. They've abandoned God's method of church growth. And they've embraced their, 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 their own consumeristic method. But what, what are they producing? And I think that's an important question that we have to ask, right? What are they producing? Right? My fear is that, that what they're producing is, is crowds that love to be entertained but hate God. Right? They're, they're producing some sort of, 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 of fruit that looks great on the outside, but when we dig down deep, we find root rot. 
And in this final chapter here of 2 Corinthians, the, the Apostle Paul, he's pretty clear about God's his unchanging plan to grow his church, his unchanging plan to, to expand his kingdom. And this plan that we're going to look at this morning is so countercultural. It goes against our own natural inclinations. We tend to think that it, it, it would stunt church growth. But we forget that God's ways aren't our ways, right? And so in this final chapter, the Apostle Paul deals with what's known as church discipline. And he plans to, to execute church discipline at his next visit to Corinth if he finds this minority still unrepentant, not embracing the gospel that he once and for all delivered to him. And, and the Lord has commissioned every single church to practice this form of ministry that we're going to look at this morning. So we have to ask ourselves the question, how, how are we doing with this command? How are we doing in regards to church discipline and taking sin seriously and conducting church in the way that the Lord has ordained for us to conduct church and not trying to take matters in our own hands? Now, you may be able to answer that question for yourself by asking yourself the question, have you ever heard a, a sermon on it? All right? You may be able to answer that question yourself by Asking yourself the question, have you, the churches that you've been a member at previously, did they practice church discipline? A survey conducted by Lifeway in 2018 demonstrated that 67% of evangelical pastors are at churches that do not practice church discipline. That's 67% of churches in America living in habitual disobedience to a command given to us by the Lord. Yet we ask the Lord to bless us. We ignore his commands to our local church and we wonder why churches are splitting. Right? The churches split nowadays and they call them church plants. Right? But we wonder why churches are splitting and we wonder why churches are dying. And a root cause for dying and splintered churches, I think the scripture's clear, is a lack of church discipline. Consider this quote from... Uh, Pastor and author John MacArthur, he says this. He says, the biggest problem facing the church isn't cultural insensitivity, but insensitivity to sin. A church that tolerates sin undermines the gospel, which proclaims transformation in Christ, resulting in living a life of obedient righteousness. The church of Corinth tolerated sin. Now, we may not think we've tolerated sin, but, but studies show otherwise. 67% of evangelical churches are actively tolerating sin by neglecting church discipline. Our churches have been deceived by sin. And let me get more specific for us this morning. Some of us in this room have been deceived by sin, and we've cultivated this hard heart toward the gospel, right, toward repentance and toward faith in Christ Jesus. And and this is serious because how can we be obedient, right? Pastor uh, Randy talked about the, the Great Commission last week for us. And how can we be obedient to that? How can we call a, a, an unbelieving culture to repent of sin and trust in the finished and comprehensive work of Christ Jesus if we're not leading them through our own example of repentance? We have to be the first in repenting. We want to see our culture change. It starts with our own change, right? Right? It starts with our own repenting. It starts with our own taking of sin seriously. 
And it's serious because sin separates us from God, right? And sin doesn't just separate us from God. Sin separates us from other people as well. But, but thankfully, God's gracious, right? And he, he's given us this means, a means by which we can, we can call brothers and sisters in Christ to repent in the context of a gospel-believing church. So what we're, what we're about to examine, it can be re- applied in our local church. It's not to be applied to unbelievers. I'm not speaking about unbelievers this morning. I'm speaking about those of us who profess faith in Christ. This method God has given us is applied to members who profess Jesus but are living contrary to his word. So, so let's look at Paul's final instructions together. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to see the necessity for church discipline and and we'll look at some other passages in the process of church discipline will, by God's grace, become evident to us. <clears throat> so 2 Corinthians chapter 13, this is the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says this, This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warn those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Seek, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we haven't failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration, and that's critical, is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for the building up and not for tearing down. And then verse 11, Paul concludes with this optimistic note here. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we're here another week, Lord, another Lord's Day to open your word, to read your word, to be changed by your word, God. And Lord, in order for that to happen, your Holy Spirit has to grant us humility, humble hearts, God, soften our hearts, God. Open the eyes of our hearts, Lord, so that we may see your word, so that we can draw closer to you, so that we can worship you with an acceptable worship, a worship that's in spirit and in truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes this morning on the back of your bulletin, the first thing that I'd have you see in this passage of Scripture is that Christ-centered churches practice church discipline for the sake of the gospel, 
the good of the believer, and the purity of the church. Christ-centered churches practice church discipline for the sake of the gospel, the good of the believer, and the purity of the church. And I'm just going to draw a few phrases out of the first four verses of chapter 13 that kind of support this statement for you. But the Apostle Paul, he's, he's, he said, this is the third time I'm coming to you. He, he draws attention to the fact that every charge that he has against them has to be established of two or three witnesses. He says, if he comes again, he uses the word, he says, I will not spare them. He says, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but he's powerful. And then he says that they're weak in him, but in dealing with the Corinthians, they will live with Jesus by the power of God. So here we have Paul kind of, he's giving his, his final warning here to the church of Corinth. And, and he promises that if he returns and he finds them tolerating sin, he's not He's not going to spare them, okay? He's not going to. He's not going to be uh, from their vantage point weak as as they have accused him of time and time again. Paul's saying he's he's not going to come and be lenient on them. The the church was tolerating sin and and neglecting church discipline, and and they've again they've accused Paul of being weak, which is just a fruit of their neglecting church discipline. But if Paul re returns, he says that he's going to judge them by the power of God. Judge them by the power of God. That's, that's really stern language, isn't it? Paul even uses the word spare in our text. And, and the word spare was used in the Greek uh, to speak of sparing one's life or having mercy on an, in, on an enemy. And Paul's saying that, that he's not going to do that. He's not going to have mercy if he comes. Those that are in unrepentant sin at Corinth, they're going to get what their sin deserves. Now, why is unrepentant sin such a serious issue? Right? Paul reminds us, Romans uh, chapter 6, the first part of verse 23, the wages of sin is what? Is death. The wages of sin is death. They're, they're headed toward death. And, it, and this is certainly speaking of a, a physical death, but we're made of body and soul. So Paul ha, has in view that sin earns us both a physical death, but also a spiritual death. And, and spiritual death in the scripture is, is called the second death. And we see the second death uh, language used by the Apostle John in, in the book of Revelation. Chapter 21, verse 8, the Apostle John, he says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now let me break this down for us for just, just a minute. <clears throat> Those who, who refuse to acknowledge sin, their sin, in other words, they, they, they refuse to agree with the Scripture about their, their sinful condition, with sins such as, as uh, John says, um, cowardliness, faithlessness, murder, hate, sexual immorality, sorcery, idolatry, lying. In other words, when we read this list, we should read it in such a way that we realize that none of us are off the hook, right? All of us. He's including... All of us here, none of us um, are, are eligible for an eternal life spent 
with our triune God. And so he's saying that the just payment of people that, that don't agree with their sinful condition, apart from the, apart from the Lord, we, we all are, are hostile toward agreeing with what the scriptures have to say about our sinful condition. But he says all these people will receive a just payment, a lake that burns with fire and sulfur. Now, a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, sulfur is, is symbolic, right? We're, we don't need to necessarily think of a literal lake that's on fire, but what John is describing is the unrelenting wrath of God. It's the unrelenting wrath of God. That's what the second death is. That's what's so horrible about the second death. The wrath of God was the very thing Jesus prayed would pass from him in the Garden of Gethsemane three times. We briefly talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So this is serious. And God gave local churches to help ensure our, our tenderness toward him. Right? Local churches serve as a conscience for those whose consciences have been hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So, so let's press pause for a, morning, for a minute because what I'm saying is it's intense, right? right? Today, if you're here, and we'll, we'll get into this more in, a, in just a moment, we have to examine ourselves. And the best way that I know to examine myself is to ask some heart-prodding questions. And as we're going through this text, some of the questions that we need to be asking ourselves as individual Christians are things like, do I agree with the Scripture about my sinful state? Right? I'm, not, I'm not rounding off my confession of sin. I see it in its ugliness, its fullness. I see that I deserve the unrelenting wrath of God. I read that. I see myself there. Amen to what the Scriptures say about me. Another question to ask yourself is, are you in humble repentance of your sin? Is there humility there? Is there, is there change? Is there a turning? Another question is, am I living in a community that calls me to repentance if I'm deceived by sin? Would they even know Another question is, am I actively trusting in the sufficient work of Jesus Christ? Presently, actively trusting in the sufficient work of Jesus Christ. So those are real, honest questions that we should be asking ourselves this morning. And Paul's so concerned for the church at Corinth to be, be presented, cleansed by the blood of Christ, that he's not going to tolerate a hint of unrepentance and rebellion toward the Lord. So, so how exactly does Paul do this? Okay, in, in verse 1, Paul uses the phrase two or three witnesses, right? Established by two or three witnesses. And we see this initially, and we won't go there for time's sake, but we see this initially in Deuteronomy 19.15, but we also see this in Matthew chapter 18, and that's where I want to take us if you have your Bibles. It's in Matthew 18 that the Lord gives us the process for church discipline. That's how we connect 2 Corinthians 13 to Matthew chapter 18. And, and in fact, this was the very first instruction that God gave to his church. It was the very first instruction here. And so look with me at the text, and we're going to quickly break down the process of what's called church discipline. And when I use the word discipline, we need to think, and we'll get into this in just a minute, but the aim is restoration, okay? And again, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But Matthew chapter 18, I'm going to start with verse 10 because this parable here is critical to the context of why church discipline is so important for us. And so Jesus tells this parable, and you're familiar with it if you've been in church life for any length of time. It's the parable of the lost sheep. 
And Jesus says, see that you don't despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who's in heaven. <clears throat> what do you think? If a man, I mean, and I skip down to verse 12 here. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who's in heaven that one of these little ones should what? Perish. Should perish. And then he, without missing a beat, we go right into verse 15, okay? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge, look, here's, our, here's, here's the phrasing the Apostle Paul uses, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, a non-believer. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The first thing we need to see out of this passage that we get really starting with the parable of the lost sheep is that the goal of church discipline is about restoration. The goal of church discipline is about rest restoration. Right? That, that's Jesus had this seeking ministry. Right? Maybe you've heard... Um, of uh, really, it was popular in the 80s and the 90s, but a, a seeker-sensitive type ministry, I would say this is the ultimate seeker-sensitive. Like, this is a, a seeking work that Jesus had that he wouldn't allow one of, of, of his little ones that have been deceived by sin to perish. He would seek them out. He would leave the 99. He would rescue them. He would bring them back into the fold of God. What we just sang about a few minutes earlier and Jesus modeled that mission for us and he left us to continue on that mission when he ascended to the right hand of the father and so the expectation of Christ is that we're going to continue doing this type of ministry that we saw our savior do in his earthly ministry does that make sense Okay, so, so the parable of the lost sheep is important because it puts in context for us church discipline where the goal is restoration, right? We're not the sin police. We're not nosy. We're not gossipy. And we aren't legalistic. In fact, church discipline doesn't work in a legalistic setting because legalistic churches don't care about restoration. Church discipline only works in a safe, open, gospel-centered community. And when restoration is the aim, church discipline is conducted in a certain manner. It's conducted with love and humility and patience. Right? When restoration is the aim, we ensure that we take Jesus' command to remove the log out of our own eye first before we delicately remove the speck out of our brother or sister's Ah, and here at Coastal Deer Park, we want people to be restored in a right relationship with God. 
We want people to be restored to a right relationship with us, with the bride of Christ. Harmony and peace and unity to abound. And we want this because we, we want ultimately for people to be spared from the wrath of God. We want people to be spared from the wrath of God. And we do this because we understand also that, that the Lord doesn't bless a church that tolerates sin. He judges a church, church that tolerates sin. Paul says in Galatians 5, 9, you don't have to turn there. He, said, he talks about how a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And what that means is, is that sin ignored or, or sin tolerated in the context of a local church is contagious. And not only is it contagious, but it stains the testimony of Christ when we're called to be ambassadors for Christ and stains the, the purity, the testimony of the entire congregation. So, so restoration needs to be the aim of church discipline for the sake of the gospel, for the good of the believer, and for the purity of the church. And once our hearts are humble and, and our motives are right, our first step, as we see outlined in the latter part of Matthew chapter 18, step one is to go to our brother or our sister alone, one-on-one. -on -one. Okay, you, you, you pray, you refuse to discuss this person's sins with, with anybody else, and you privately, not during a service, not after the service, not before a church service, but you go to them privately and you go to them humbly, face-to-face, -face, not email or a text message or on their social media platform, but you go and you confront. <clears throat> you go and you confront. And, and at Coastal, we found that, that church discipline ends here most of the time. It's a high percentage that, that, that most of the time when we're in the beginning stages of church discipline, it ends at this level, a one-on-one -on -one confrontation. And, and I believe it's because God blesses those who lovingly and privately confront. God blesses people that do that. And, and as a word of encouragement, the, the quicker, as, as, as people that are called to, to link arms with one another and do life with one another and remind each other of the gospel and the deceitfulness of sin, as an encouragement to you, the quicker we confront, the better. The quicker we confront, the more tender a person will be. The longer someone lives with a sinful, arrogant mindset, the more hardened they become, right? the more illogical they become. Because sin, it, 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 it makes our, our consciences uh, dull. It makes us illogical. Our elder team has set across from people that have gotten pretty far down the road in this process of church discipline, and they're so deceived by sin that they believe their own lies. They actually believe what they're saying. So we can't allow the sickness of sin to fester in the life of a believer. We have to love them enough to step in as soon as possible, okay? Step two is outlined in Matthew chapter 18. If he or she doesn't repent, we take one or two other spiritually mature, emphasis on spiritually mature, right, Christians, and it's here that the Lord gives us handles on how to bring other people in without committing the sin of gossip. All right? Again, this is a, a seeking ministry that Christ has left for us to do. And the aim is restoration. And so if your initial confrontation doesn't work, you bring in one or two other spiritually mature brothers or sisters, witnesses is what the Apostle Paul calls them, 
and you confront this brother or sister that's deceived by their sin, you confront them privately. Now, when we have confronted as an elder team or as some spiritually mature brothers and sisters in Christ, at this point, we have moved past kind of an initial one-on-one stage. There's three, four, five five of us in the room, and we have outlined in a document, this is how we do it, this isn't thus saith the Lord, but just to give some practical handles for us, we've outlined the sin that uh, the person doesn't see and what the scripture has to say about it, and we give a plan of restoration. We want you to be restored. We don't keep that as this high and lofty hope. We make it very concrete for the person that's deceived in sin, and we say, this is the process that we are committed as brothers and sisters in the Lord to walking with you on. Here's the process. Now, we want to link arms. It's not, here's the process. Best of luck with that. It's here is the process. This is really time-consuming for me. It's very tedious and hard. It's going to include late phone calls. It's, it, this type of work is an inconvenience. And if we're, not being, if we're not willing to be inconvenienced for the gospel, then what in the world are we doing? So this is an inconvenient ministry that we have to be committed to if we're serious about having people restored in a right relationship with the Lord. We have to be in it for the long haul with them. And when we see this local body, when you're looking around and you see right now, there's a lot of strangers in this room to one another. But my hope and my prayer, Pastor Randy's hope and prayer, is that more and more as we worship together, we spend time investing in one another's lives. And, and this is re- really becomes familial. This is a family. This is God's body. This is the bride of Christ. And so this is a big part of it. So we go and we commit to walking with a person if, if they repent through this process of restoration. Now, step three, if repentance still isn't gained, the church must confront. The church steps in. And if we've gotten to this step, it's because, again, this person is pretty far down the road in regards to being deceived by sin. Okay, when a person falls, that person doesn't fall far. Right? They, when they fall, there have been things over a period of time that have been leading up to that fall. And so they're pretty far down the road. And so what we begin to do is lean into their community in the local church, asking their godly community, their small group leaders, ministry leaders, close godly friends to call this person, to lean on this person, to repent. And if that doesn't work, the final step is step four. If, she or, if he or she refuses, refuses to repent, the church declares the individual an unbeliever. That's the significance of the Gentile tax collector language here right god has given the the church the authority he says if you agree what you bind on earth is bound in heaven you know what is all that about right a church that's seeking this restoration ministry this ministry that jesus christ modeled their hearts are going to be in tune with the things of the lord and they're going to agree with the scriptures about what sin is they're going to agree with the scriptures about what restoration is and so when they get to the point of declaring a person an unbeliever they're declaring a person an unbeliever not on their own authority but they're saying the bible defines what what a christian is and you disagree with the bible's definition of a christian therefore we're saying because of that the bible says you're not a christian and so now we're engaging with you as one who's not in christ and we're asking you to become a Christian at this point. 
Right? We're not treating them like a brother or a sister. We're treating them like an unbeliever. And again, this is for the purity of the church. This is so that we can have clarity on the gospel and what the Bible defines as the gospel. This is for the good of the person that's entangled by sin. So a question that I ask when reading a passage like this is, how do we keep from getting to this point? And I think the Apostle Paul continues to give us some handles later on, starting in verse 5. But how, how do we as individual Christians, in, what are some ways that we can ensure that we're not being deceived by sin's deceitfulness and we're not persevering in our confession that Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings? Okay? Christians should practice daily confession of sin, repentance of sin, and faith in Jesus. And again, this is all happening in the context of the local church. You're, as a Christian, you're not an island, right? In order to be part of the universal church, you've got to be connected to what God's doing. In, in the, the Bible is written, uh, the epistles are written to local churches. And so this needs to be happening in the context of the local church. But Christians should practice daily confession of sin, repentance of sin, faith in Jesus. And so we see that the Apostle Paul, especially in verse 5, he, he challenges uh, the, the church of Corinth to examine themselves and see whether they're in the faith. They're examining themselves based on the message that the Apostle Paul once and for all delivered to them. That's the measuring rod by which they can find answers to the questions that should come out of uh, uh, a time of them examining themselves, of them testing themselves, as the Apostle Paul says. And he, and he tries to call them to repentance based on their profession of faith. They claim that they're in Christ Jesus, and, say, and so he says, don't, don't you realize this about yourselves, that Jesus is in you? He's in you. So if Jesus, he's saying, if Jesus is in you, that is the power by which you repent of sin. Because Christ declared from the cross, it is finished, and he endured all the wrath of God for the believer on the cross. Amen? So that's the power, that's, that, that's, that's, that's the source of where a believer can find the power, the motivation, the, the perseverance to repent, okay? And then he says, unless you fail to meet the test, unless when you're examining yourself, you find and you come to the conclusion that you're not a Christian according to the message we delivered to you. So examine, test, remember you're in Christ Jesus, now, I would say these practices take some silence and solitude, right, on, the, on, the, on us as individual believe, believers. All right, we, we, we need to get alone with God. I read a study conducted by a journal called Science. And in 2014, they concluded that when people spend time in silence, they are markedly less happy. And, and to prove this, a social psychologist professor at UVA, he took hundreds of undergraduate students and he asked them to take part in an exercise called thinking periods, is what he called it, thinking periods. And in the, in the study, you couldn't have any cell phones, you couldn't have any reading materials, nothing that could distract you from this thinking period, this silence and solitude period, if you will. And all they had to do <clears throat> was just sit and think. That's all they had to do, okay? Over 50% reported that they hated the exercise, okay? They hated the exercise. And so <clears throat> the psychology professors decided to take it a step further, okay? 
they decided to uh, leave men and women in a room for 15 minutes of silence and solitude. It's 15 solid minutes of silence and solitude. And the participants in the study were given the option. They could either sit silently with their thoughts for 15 minutes, or they were given a, a, a button, and they could push this button, and the button would electrocute them. Okay? You can see where I'm going with this. Listen to the results of this study. And this will com conclude my hypothesis that men are way dumber than women. 67% <clears throat> of all men shot themselves repeatedly. Not once. <laughs> repeatedly. Continually shot themselves during the 15 minutes. 25% of women did the same thing. But, I mean... 70% of men repeatedly shock themselves, okay? Why do I bring that up, right? Silence and solitude is something that at least the broader culture seems to fear to practice. And my question is just a, a simple question of examine yourself in that area. Do you spend time giving yourself silence and solitude so that you can ask heart-prodding questions. You can ask questions about whether you're being deceived by sin, right? Are you giving yourself space to ask those important questions of yourself so that you can have a soft and humble heart, right? So that you can savor who God is for you in Christ Jesus. Are we giving ourselves space or is 15 minutes... Are we fearful of being alone with our conscience, right? This 67% of men that repeatedly shot themselves, it's super funny to me to read that, but I do ask a question that's kind of underlining that is there's something going on with the majority of men, at least in this study, and again, this is hundreds of men that they tested, that they can't be left alone with their own thoughts because they fear what they're thinking, Right? And so, do we have a Christ-centered, clear conscience? And God-centered silence and solitude, they're, they're this means of grace to promote heart-prodding questions in our lives. And so we may fear silence and solitude, but we have, to, we have to give ourselves space for it. And then finally, and I'll break these down quickly, a gospel-centered church, it, it functions <clears throat> a certain way. A gospel-centered church functions a certain way, and we, we see this as the Apostle Paul turns from this conversation about church discipline to really this optimism that he has for the church at Corinth, okay? First, he, he talks about how there's a rejoice. A gospel-centered church is a rejoicing church. It rejoices in the Lord and rejoices in each other. That's the first part of verse 11. Finally, brothers, rejoice, right? There's this delighting in God. And this delighting in God leads to a delighting in one another, Right? When we delight in one another as a community, it's only the outpour of us delighting in the Lord. And so can we, can we truly say that we delight in one another's company? And how are we cultivating delighting in one another? Are we getting to know one another? Are we serving one another? Are we speaking graciously with one another? Right? A gospel-centered church is a rejoicing church, and we see those types of fruits that are evident there. Secondly, and we've covered this already, but there's gospel-centered restoration, right? That's the next part of verse 11. He says, aim for restoration. Right? Restoration is the act of returning someone to their former place. 
Okay, the Corinthians, they, they once enjoyed fellowship with God by embracing the gospel according to the way the Apostle Paul preached it to them. And Paul is now reminding them of the restorative gospel. Right? That, that, that really is at the root, again, of repentance, the gospel. Romans uh, 2.4 speaks of God's kindness leading us to repentance. And where do we see God's kindness displayed for us ultimately? We see it in the finished work of Jesus Christ, right? That's where we see God's kindness ultimately displayed. And so thinking on that, truly thinking on that can lead us to true restoration. It can lead us toward repentance and faith. And so we got to think about that in our own lives this morning, right? Some of you sitting here have wrestled with the same sin, right? Unable to find victory, any victory of overcoming it. And, 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 and you've, you haven't found victory in overcoming it, even though the Holy Spirit lives in you. So have you given, my question is, have you given much consideration to the kind God who saved you? Have you spent time wading through that? Have you spent time thinking through the finished work of Jesus and its implications for your life? Not daydreaming about it, but, but this thoughtfulness that comes from regularly communing with God. We also see the end of verse 11, and then I put in verse... 12, or another piece of verse 11, and then I put in verse 12 here, there's this familial interdependence. It talks about comforting one another. It talks about greeting one another with a holy kiss. Right? God's church should be stronger than any other bond because it's built on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Right? But we, oftentimes, we, we, we insulate ourselves from becoming interdependent, Right? And some of it is just this, we don't want to get messy. Our Western church doesn't want to get messy. So our relationships are often clinical and they're tidy and they're very surfacy. We don't bear one another's burdens well. We don't make our needs known. We don't share prayer requests. We, we don't meet other people's needs. We don't pray for others. And apart from Sunday, sometimes we don't even attempt to be in each other's lives apart from what we're doing right now. now Paul's encouragement for the Corinthian church and consequently us to comfort one another requires that we know what's troubling each other, right? Right? The greeting with a holy kiss, it, it, was more than, it was more than just a how are you good kind of greeting, right? Now, we, we don't want to start kissing people, but the point is we need to be invested even in our greetings, Right? I want to be invested even in those. Oftentimes when I'm greeting somebody or I'm meeting someone for the first time, hey, how are you? My name's Joey. What's your name? And when they start answering, I'm already thinking about what I'm going to say next. I'm not even listening to what they're saying. Then I ask them for their name four or five times to my embarrassment. But what if I pressed pause? And what if I truly listened to what the person says in front of me and I invested in that conversation, this sovereign moment, right? That God has given me? What if we thought about where, when we're passing each other in, in just a minute when we end the service and we start speaking to one another? What if we looked at those as sovereign moments God has given us to invest in each other? Something for us to think about. Linger a little bit longer. Listen carefully. Now, intentional rejoicing, restoration, and this interdependence. I think the Apostle Paul tells us it leads to two primary fruits. And this ends our, our 
<clears throat> chapter 13 here. First is this, there's agreement and peace with one another because Scripture is the final authority. Paul says, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Right? A rejoicing, restored family lives in agreement and peace because they're concerned with the things of God. They're concerned with the advancement of the gospel. They're concerned with being sought and light and delighting in one another. And then most importantly, letter E, there's fellowship with the triune God. This is beautiful the way that the Apostle Paul ends it for us. The grace of the Lord, in verse 14, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Right? There's a mindfulness of the Trinity there, right? And this mindfulness of the Trinity empowers all the stuff that we've been talking about this morning. So these are the fruits of a church. Listen, these are the fruits of a church that take church discipline seriously. Isn't that crazy to think of? These are things that flow from a church that takes God's first instruction he gave to the church. Matthew chapter 18. We take that seriously. So when we, when we have this stuff in mind, it becomes clear to us that what God commands us is ultimately for our good, isn't it? God is for our good. For God to be for his glory is for our good. And so to, to forsake an issue as important as church discipline is to miss out on this rich, enjoyable fellowship with God and others. And so a church that takes sin seriously enjoys the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And it makes me think of the words of the, the old Puritan Thomas Watson who says, till sin be bitter, Christ cannot be sweet. So we want to cultivate in our lives a bitterness for sin so that the fruit of that will be a sweetness for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for, God, just how kind you are to us, Lord, that you give us handles on how to, God, repent of our own sin, trust in Jesus, Lord, worship you, God, to call others to do the same, Lord. God, I think of one pastor who talks about how to call a brother or sister to repent is to call them to their joy. So, Lord, may we be convinced that that calling sin what it is and calling people to turn from it and to put their faith in Jesus really is for their joy. And Lord, we worship you this morning and we thank you for this gathering of this body of believers. And so help us to lead a, a lost and dying culture into faith and repentance by our own faith and repentance. And we pray this in Jesus' name.